Welcome to GDN's Talking Comics interview. On today's show, we welcome back screenwriter creator Tom Pinchuk. We last talked to Tom about his book, Remember Andy Xenon. Now, Tom is once again teaming with artist Nikos Kutsis on a new series through the new content platform, Kipsel. The new series, Clash of the Classics, combines two beloved and classic literary adventure stories into new and exciting tales. Starting with the first book in the series, Don Quixote Fights the War of the Worlds. Now, here's your host, Martin Sexton. Welcome once again to another edition of GBN's Talking Comics Interview. I am your host, Martin, and today we welcome back writer, screenwriter, creator, Tom Pinchuk. Last time we talked to Tom, it was all about his book, Remember Andy Zenon, with artist Nikos Kutsis. But Tom's not one to rest on past successes because he's teaming once again with Nico, this time through a new content platform, Kipsel, on a new anthology series, Clash of the Classics, remixing famous literary epics into utterly unpredictable and, quite frankly, entertaining stories. The first being a great preview of things to come, Don Quixote fights the War of the Worlds. So let's talk comics by welcoming back Tom Pinchuk to GVN's Talking Comics interview. Thanks for coming back to visit us today, Tom. How are we doing? Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Martin. All right. I appreciate it. Okay. So, uh, so just to remind folks, Tom is a, a multi-talented writer. He uh, works has worked on television, of course, comics, uh, but he also teaches a writing course through UCLA Extension, which uh, I believe in, in this fall, I think you have a continuation course for students working on a, like a half hour television pilot. Uh, so as, during your time of instructing students in writing, who do you, who do you think gets more out of it? Uh, you or your students? Uh, well, I always like to say my students, I hope so. <laughs> um, I, I really come to enjoy it a lot uh, as a teacher. It was, it was not something I really um, expected, I, th I think, that I was going to be adding to my, uh, my CV, but I met a rep for uh, UCLA Extension, actually, at Comic-Con. Uh, it was at a, a WGA party, and he, we got to talking, and he said, would you be interested in teaching? I said, sure, you know, and I, I went through it, and um, I've really come to enjoy it a lot. Uh, the, the course that I'm teaching this, uh, um, this coming quarter is the second part of a, you know, developing a half hour pilot, but I've also taught, uh, writing half hour specs, um, which is just like a, that's like a sample episode that you write. Um, if you want to say, I don't know, if you want to write like Abbott Elementary or Rick and Morty, um, to show that you could, uh, you know, write in that, uh, that realm. And uh, I've been doing it a few years now. Uh, we, we kind of even uh, had to adjust during the pandemic as well, which was kind of a fascinating. <laughs> I was sort of actually the um, kind of a guinea pig because uh, I, I taught the last class um, the last day that UCLA campus was open, um, like a, a ending at 10 o'clock. And then I also then uh, taught the first, uh, what, we, what we call an intensive, um, the um, you know, once they resumed um, instruction and we were all kind of figuring it out as we went along. Um, actually, what's what's cool, too, is that um, next um, next winter, um, I, I always have to get adjusted to saying winter <laughs> at the beginning of the year because I always think of winter at the, as the end. But I right. think in academic terms, it's really the beginning. Um, I'll be teaching a um, uh, pretty intense like a four day workshop uh, for writing comics, actually, at, at UCLA. So oh. um, that'll be pretty interesting. That's where we're just starting that now. And I had to do all the um, proposals for it. So um, that's going to be pretty fun. Um, I've, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the experience. I think it's been, um, 
I think maybe more than anything, it's, it's gotten me to emphasize with, or empathize, I should say, with, um, you know, editors that I've worked with, the story editors, because I really find myself in that position now, because I'll have students who I'm trying to guide them, and, you know, literally, I am editing their work, I am story editing their work, um, and get, giving them notes and trying to, um, you know, get them in a direction uh, for the class. So it's been, it's been, I, 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 lo I would love to say it's been a uh, reciprocal. I think I've uh, <laughs> generally this, the students have, um, you know, I, I've, I've had some who've been very uh, vocal in saying how much they enjoyed it and they've really felt they went on an odyssey and learned a lot in my class, which is definitely very um, satisfying to hear. Um, although there's always the cases too, where this, they go off in the world and you're sort of, <laughs> you're hoping you made a good impression. So um that's uh, yeah, I, I think that's 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 how to phrase it. I definitely enjoy it for sure. I say uh, so. Do you have a problem with you know being critical with your students, or is there, or are you know they pretty much are used to that, so they don't you know take offense to it or anything like that? I you know it's it's interesting because I I, I didn't come in from a I, UCLA Extension really prides itself on people who are working in the industry. Um, as opposed to um, if we were dealing with a professor who may be someone who has a degree in teaching, but maybe not uh, experience uh, writing professionally. Um, and I, I think there's pluses and minuses to both for sure. There was definitely a learning curve early on that I just had to get used to. Um, but I only bring that up in the sense that a, a lot of my guiding philosophy is honestly just remembering bad teachers that I've had, <laughs> um, maybe more so than, um, than good ones, which is unfortunate because I have had some good ones. But um, I, I think that People are learning, and I, I think it's there are more constructive ways to to help somebody and to guide them than it is to um, really browbeat them. And it's something that I've I've heard from students and certainly experienced myself, where I, I think there are some um, instructors who or teachers in any field. I mean, I think you deal with these personalities anywhere who seem to get a rise really more out of browbeating, um, and I, I don't think it's very constructive. Um, I, I don't think it really. Um, I don't think it's a good way to teach, in my opinion. I think that there's, you know, there's certainly there are students whose work is more raw than others, um, for sure. But I think it's better to, there's always ways that you can present notes. I think that it, you know, and I, I think my, my trade is in words. So I think when I'm presenting it as, there are ways to phrase it where you're saying the same thing and you're trying to get the same result, but I think you can phrase it more positively than to phrase it in such a way that you're trying to break somebody down, which I, I don't like. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so like I said, last time we talked, we of course you were we were promoting. Remember Andy Zenon through Zoop, yes. uh, which was fully funded. Uh, so how was the experience with Zoop, and uh, what do you think you've kind of learned through, through that whole experience? Oh, a lot. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, above all, I as much reading as I did ahead of time about uh, you know trying to self-publish or work on a, a crowdfunding platform. I think I think Zoop was a unique case because they were sort of kind of hovering between sort of a publisher, sort of a new platform, sort of a, um, uh, a crowd funder. Um, and I, I, I think that as much as you read ahead of time, there's nothing that's ever going to prepare you for experience. So yeah. as much, um, and I definitely learned a lot um, from doing that. Um, actually, I think what was, um, well, I mean, we, we ran into, I guess to talk a little bit of shop about it, um, one thing that we ran into was just that, uh, what, what I mused about was, uh, a lot of the motive for doing the book was that uh, Nikos and I had been working on a project together in 2020 and we got interrupted by the pandemic. Um, there was a company that we knew that probably three uh, editors we knew got laid off and uh, retailers were uh, 
uh, closing up or they were they were just not I mean not closing permanently but were closed to the public and then also there was a real upheaval in comics distribution and we wanted to think of ways to sidestep that and so Zoop really presented itself at the right time is to go directly to re readers and um, get the book to them. What we, I suppose, what I, what I laughed about, I, I think, in uh, a few months down the line was we ran into supply chain issues, and um, which everybody's dealing with in one way or another uh, right now. And there was a time where we did have to give, you know, as, as much as we tried to mitigate everything by having the book done in advance and having everything done, um, when it came time to printing, um, there was an issue because we were looking at an overseas printer that was going to be giving us a good rate, but then they couldn't give us any guarantee or not, not even a guarantee, but any estimate on, on a shipping date, meaning right. that it could, you know, if we print the book, it could come in six days or it could come in six months. And that was just unacceptable to me. Um, I didn't, I just didn't want to be, you know, I, I didn't want to be doing continual updates to um, the, the readers and saying like, Hey, well, we don't, I wish I had a better answer for you. So that took a little time to find a, um, find a domestic printer which we wound up doing and we, we found a really good one and um then we ran into paper shortages which sort of uh, affected things um but then the book eventually uh we got it and and people were really happy with how it came out i think that the printing quality was great it, it was like a prestige format book i think that there's always those moments of um you know crossing your fingers when you when the the i because I think the nature of the of the one that we were working with, they weren't really going to give us a proof copy. Um, that was just sort of the trade off. You know, the one that we were looking for initially was going to give us a proof, but then this one, it, it wasn't in the card for that. So then we just, um, you know, you try to do your best and communicate to them what paper stock you want and how you want the binding and making sure that the files are all correct. But then you just have to have that leap of faith um, when the books come in and they came out really well. Um, actually, what's what's uh, to segue to? I mean, I, I've I've had a really fun um, odyssey over the past uh, couple months because when we made the book, we never had a distributor in mind. It was really, I mean, there's so many things. I I think again of, of a lot of the lessons I've learned from doing this is just that I I I think going into it, I didn't I didn't have a thorough grasp of what an editor does in comics, and now I think I do in in all <laughs> capacities just because it is very challenging to be doing the creative aspect of producing a, com um, uh, a comic in addition to all the administrative tasks. It's just, it's, it's a lot. Um, so um, in this case also, I became a distributor because I, I had boxes and boxes of books. I had um, hundreds of copies and I didn't really plan ahead if, if I was <laughs> going to be going to co conventions or when those would be happening. And so I decided Stores are opening up. I, I don't know if this is the old fashioned way, but I'm going to go try it. I, I rolled up my sleeves and I, I got some, put the boxes in the back of my trunk and I hit the road and I, I went to every comic store in every area code um, uh, that was around me. And I went pretty much from like city to city, county to county, even state to state. And um, at this count, we have dozens of stores. Um, I'm always bad with numbers. I don't remember the exact <laughs> one off the hand, but I've, we did a, you know, if, if you follow my newsletter, we did have a pretty long um, list of them. And I, I just found it the, honestly, one of the best experiences of my career. Um, I think that, you know, I, I like, I, what can I say? I, I like interacting with people. Um, I, you know, I think that there's so much of um, when you're creating a comic is just being in your room and it's being, you know, in your head. And it's, it's just, there's something 
very surreal and rewarding about being able to talk to somebody face to face about what you've made and having the book there and um, you know, seeing their reaction to it in, in real time. And we, it was uh, generally a, a positive response. Um, I also think that something that I came away with is I think that there also is a lot of discussions of the comics industry or the retailer space, I think is unnecessarily negative. I would probably even say sensationalistic because I found a very vibrant scene. Um, there were, there were lots of stores, there were more stores than I could physically go to. You put it that way. Um, and and what I found also really um, encouraging was there was it was just a real variety of stores. So there were these big chains. There were also more cozy independents. And there were also stores that had been around for decades and um, they've been still going strong. And also, I, I'd say equally inspiring, there were a surprising number of stores that opened during the pandemic. You know, they, they had they had a dream and they were going to make it happen regardless of the circumstances. And so I, I, it was really wonderful. And I, I've, I'm really grateful to everybody who bought copies of the books. These retailers who just entertain the stranger walking in with a <laughs> the box of books they never heard of before. I was doing the kind of classic door-to-door -door sales uh, technique, but uh, it was, it was great. And so we've, we've been having, there, there are a fair number of stores now that do have Andy Zine on, on the shelves and we never had a distributor. Excellent. Actually, you just segue right into what I was going to talk about. So uh, good job there. Uh, hey. uh, so as far as uh, as far as Comic Cons go, out, it's, you know, like you said, they are starting to open up now. Uh, you know, we're still fighting a little bit of the pandemic, but you know, some of the, con the cons are opening up. Uh, have you had a chance to go to any of those? Yeah, I was I was at San Diego Comic Con uh, last month. Um, I'll confess there was a bit of trepidation going into yeah. it, as opposed to some mix of uh, cautious optimism. Um, I would say it was about 70% uh, from what I could observe of what it would normally be, which is still overwhelming, I think, for any uh, human being. Um, I do want to pay compliments to um, CCI for the security measures that they took and also the screening measures that they took, because I think those are very, very hard tasks. And it's also something that's kind of this invisible job that happens at these conventions. They definitely uh, deserve um some credit for that good to just talk to people face to face and i was giving them copies of the book and you know, you know giving it to colleagues and to um giving it to publishers as well um you know catching up with some people i think normally i you know i i wasn't tabling this year um i wasn't you know i wasn't in artist alley and i wasn't doing any signings um and so i my, my whenever i go to convention i really try to attack it basically which is maybe <laughs> not the best choice of words i suppose now that i mentioned um security but i mean that I, I try to go in with like not you know leaving no stone unturned and no um no moment wasted which usually translates at comic-con to me losing my voice um by night two or at least but but definitely by day, day three and so i'll have um be meeting people at conventions and it's always very charming to say hi <laughs> you know um and I, you know, I try to go, there's, there's been some times where I'll go to parties and maybe I'll get triple booked. But this time I was like, look, if, if it doesn't, I'm not going to chase anything. If it, if, if it doesn't manifest and it's not easy and it's not going to just, you know, on my lap, I'll be perfectly content staying in my hotel room and rather than going all night and getting up early and only maybe getting like a, a few scan hours of sleep. Because I think even in a good year, you're typically have, like they say, the con crud, you know, you get some kind of, um, some bug after the convention and, and I really didn't want to risk that this time. 
So um, I, I, you know, knock on wood, I managed to go get through it without um, getting sick. And I think it was a pretty successful convention. Um, I still think it's a little, to be totally honest, I, I, it's a little awkward when you're networking with half your face covered. Um, I understand that, uh, you know, it, 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 I think it's been the, the thing that's been fascinating in, in all the facets over the past few years, a couple of years, I suppose, with, with masking is you forget the number of times that you, you talk to somebody where half their face is covered and then you see them with the, the mask off and you feel like they look like a completely different person. Um, and I think that that, especially at a convention, it's something that if you're meeting somebody new, you know, if you're changing business cards or what have you, it really is, it's a little difficult, especially on a loud convention um, uh, floor to uh, have to shout over the din um, with another layer. But, um, you know, I, I think they're easing back into it. I, I you know, I, I think all of this is kind of like baby steps, even even with UCLA, um, just this quarter, uh, we did have a mask mandate and they just lifted it um, last week. So I, I think there a lot of this is um, incremental updates. So, you know, I, I had a good time. Um, I, I enjoyed Comic-Con. It was, it was definitely worthwhile to go to. Um, I uh, Coincidentally, I suppose, but I, I, I won't, it looks like I won't be going to any other conventions for the rest of the year, but not, not because of any kind of like leeriness on my part, but mainly just because I have a conflict actually like every, <laughs> every weekend that they're, um, they're happening. So. Right. Okay. So let's get, uh, let's start talking about what's going on now. Okay. So you've hooked up with Kipsel, which is a new content platform with kind of a unique uh, sales model. Uh, can you mm-hmm. tell us a little, uh, our followers a little bit about it and how you got connected with them? Well, um, I think the, the first, uh, the second part, I'll, I'll start with and I'll get, get the first. Um, I, uh, there's uh, Victor Shuker, who's uh, one of the partners in the company, is a, is a friend of mine. Um, I've known him a few years and he reached out to me. And initially they were looking to be getting into, um, they, I mean, they were looking to get into the space of um, uh, just a content platform. It was initially for, for books. Uh, I think they're, they're, it's mostly for books and I think there's some music on it right now. Um, and they were uh, interested in doing comics. And so initially I was just getting, getting consulted. And I think they liked what I, what I hear, what I was telling them, I guess the advice I was giving them about comics. So they asked me, would I want to pitch something to them? And I said, sure. And so um, we were batting around a number of ideas and then it just seemed that uh, this clash of the classics would be a good fit. Uh, I'll get to more of that in a minute. Um, as to how their uh, their business model works, um, I think their their approach was that they felt that having like a street team for a book is maybe like you know it, it was effectively kind of taking word of mouth I think to like the next step, meaning that if perhaps you incentivize people who are already likely to like try to talk talk a book up to their friends um, in the digital space, I think that's been. I, I think there's been a bit of an adjustment over the past like a few years in terms of, okay, well, there was a whole notion of collectability and trading and so on and so forth right. when you had physical media that maybe doesn't translate as much when you have digital. And I think what, what their approach was with this sales model was to um, bring more of that back. So the notion being that, you know, if you buy um, Clash of the Classics, you then have the option actually to sell it to friends. So um, if you, it won't be for as much, but it'll be for a, a percentage of, of the cover price. And the hope is, is that if we have someone who's really taken with Clash of the Classics and really wants people to read it and to, to share in their enjoyment of it, now they have just like that much more um, incentive to do so. 
So um, as far as I know, I think they're the only ones doing that. Um, I, I, it's, it's an exciting model. I think that um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think with whenever it comes to any platform that I've worked with, or any publisher I've worked with, I think, you know, I, there's not, I, I can't speak too comprehensively about that because I certainly, you know, they, like, you know, they, they, they commissioned me and um, I got to make the comics that I wanted to make. And I was really surprised at the creative freedom I was allowed. Um, and I just sort of like leave it up to them about how, where it goes from there, but it's an exciting, um, you know, model uh, to, to see how it unfolds. Right. Okay. So, you know, we've talked about Clash of the Classics, which I think was a, is a great idea. I, I think you actually, you described it sort of almost like Marvel's what if, but in your case, you get to use the whole literary world as your, uh, your point of view. Uh, so, uh, and actually, I was go going through your chronicles, uh, your Chuck Chronicles on Substack, oh. and you and you had mentioned something about, you know, you was doing an online film class. And of course, they asked you about where your ideas came from. And mm. you had said that they come from everywhere, including uh, the stories you've read, which kind of fits right into this. Uh, so uh, your first book is Don Quixote Fights the War of the Worlds. So how did you come together to mix those two together? I... We, we kind of went through a, a, a brainstorming process and I think we were just seeing like which ones were the, the, in the literary tradition that we, we just thought would still be relevant today. And I, I just, I, I can't, I, sometimes it's just a bolt of blue. I don't know. It's just, it, it kind of just seemed like I, the image of, of Don Quixote squaring off with a uh, Martian tripod was just, it just came to me and it just seemed to fit. Um, I think that above all, um, because you know, as you said, the, the way we're, we've been we've been describing this to people is it's like what if, but with with um, classic adventure characters. So um, typically, what we're what we're planning to do um, is to take a character from one uh, book, like say Don Quixote, and uh, uh, put him in the plot of another one, which in this case is War of the Worlds, and then just see what happens um, from there. And um, I I think that the overriding creative um, inspiration for me was get it was I, I always try to get back in touch with who I was you know as a reader at, you know at, at whatever age and I suppose it even goes back to the question you're having earlier about being a student you know versus <laughs> being a teacher um you know I as much as I love uh literature and you know the literary tradition I I, do, I don't think I'm I'm alone in saying there have been some times where I was in grade school and I was bored and maybe not super engaged with the material and sometimes the um, the little naughty uh, mind that you have starts to imagine um, how perhaps the story could go in more exciting ways. And um, I think that there's been a bit of a, um, you know, there, there's been a, more of an audience for that. I mean, I think that we, we pointed to say Pride and Prejudice and Zombies as, as an example of something that was definitely kind of caught on with people that perhaps they were reading Jane Austen and <laughs> wanting to have, um, you know, flesh eating monsters show up. So. I was just really taken with the idea of just ruining the point of Don Quixote, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did, we, we did our research. I mean, these, I, I, what, I, what I said to them was if we're gonna be using public domain characters, I wanna make sure that they're all, um, I don't wanna cheat and, and just rely on the popular conceptions of them or say like we only watched like I don't know, uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula or having watched that movie all the way through. I said, I want to actually really base this off the book because, you know, I, I, I think especially in comics, you have plenty of cases where it's like, it was Dracula versus the Wolfman in Oz. And it's just, it, does, it, it doesn't seem especially clever and it doesn't seem especially, um, you know, authentic to the books. And so we really wanted to 
I, I what I found more inspiring was getting into the nitty gritty details and trying to make it like sort of play it straight, despite how ridiculous it gets sometimes. Um, and so something that I was struck by, and, and I think honestly this was the case in, in, in any of the research that I did, was that almost any time I read these books, I realized that the popular conceptions of them were wrong, or they missed something, or a lot of times that there was a certain, that people would describe there being subtext in a book that really just is the text. Um, you know, um, I think that, um, so in the, in the case of Don Quixote, what really struck me was I, I was going, I was about like, a, you know, a few chapters in and I realized this is kick-ass in medieval time. Like it really just, the parallels were actually kind of striking. It was, you know, you have someone who's reading too many stories of adventures and heroes and starts to believe it and wants to set out to be one and has been really inept at it. Um, and so I, I just kind of thought that, you know, I, I think that, continually when you read Don Quixote he's he's failing like that's the point it's just that he doesn't know what he's doing and he's he's seeing things that aren't there and he's he's a you know he's a a, a giant in his own mind so to speak even though you know, he's mistaking the um the windmills for giants and I just thought to myself like what if he could kick ass <laughs> you know what you know what, what if we gave we we let him win like we let him actually be a knight and let let him really fight monsters and you know perhaps there could be some wonderful irony in that in the fact that um apart from everybody else in spain at the time he's actually uniquely qualified to fight these monsters because he's been training at it for many years so um that was just really too uh irresistible to not explore I said, well, uh, of course, I have, I'm kind of embarrassed. I was, I am, you know, other than just like on the outside looking in, I wasn't that familiar with Don Quixote, other than the Gordon Lightfoot song, which I knew that. Uh, so uh, it was actually very interesting. Okay, whose idea was it to put the windmill blades on the on the alien ships? Because I thought that was fabulous. <laughs> that actually was Kipsel's idea. Um, I'll confess, I kind of that was not my initial conception. Um, but they thought it would be cool to, um, you know, I, the, the, the initial designs that uh, Nikos had were more uh, futuristic for the tripods. And, uh, or actually, as I also found out, they're never referred to as tripods actually in War of the Worlds. They're called fighting machines um, exclusively. Um, but his initial designs were more futuristic. And we were just thinking that maybe that wasn't as unique um, because. We did want to employ some uh, creative license in this. Uh, you know, I think it's always with creative licenses about picking your battles. Um, and so in this case, we the suggestion came on that perhaps they should look a little more um, steampunk, as just because it's 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 said in the past. And um, you know, we perhaps to differentiate them from the other tripods, we decided to give them. Um, the um you know the, the I, I think we sort of found like a middle ground where i was suggesting that they maybe look more like solar panels so like they're not specifically just like um uh blades um but you know i, I was a little skeptical about that idea but you know nikos really made it work he, he really uh executed in such a way and so once it was done i couldn't really argue with it and uh and i wasn't sure as i was reading i was wondering if this was just as don quixote was seeing it or if this was actually what it looked like uh and I I don't know. You you tell me. <laughs> it's all real. <laughs> it's all it's all real. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I think that I don't know. I, I as a personal preference, I've never really been a fan of like it was always a dream endings. Um, I think that that sometimes 
it, it just feels like you've kind of invested into a story up until a certain point. And then if it, at the end, it's kind of this fake out and saying that, oh, whoops, none of it really happened. Uh-huh. It, it, it just feels, it kind of takes me out of it. So I found it more interesting just to have it be like, no, this is all real. He's not imagining. Uh, oh, he, he, he doesn't have the, the, the firmest grasp, I, I guess what I would confirm, but like whatever you're seeing is what you get. Like it, it is happening. It is real. It is uh, it all the, the bloody viscera of it. I say, and of course, Nico, as you said, did a great job on it. Of course, that's not the first time you're working with Nico. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what is it I think you, about Nico's art that merges so well with your with your stories? Uh, I've always been a fan of, uh, for lack of a better term, cartoonier art, um, but something that also combines a lot of detail. So uh, it's something that I, you know, I was a huge fan of Chris Bacciolo's work and um, Duncan Rouleau's. And um, I think, uh, you know, Nikos, he's definitely been, was influenced by Todd McFarlane. And I think we've, we've heard a lot of comparisons to Greg Capullo um, to his work. And it's something that I, I think there's, to, to my mind, I just, my, my sensibility and a lot of the books that I'm drawn to kind of have like that sort of sense of, it's that it's a very delicate middle ground of, you know, if, if it's too photo real, sometimes it feels like I'm not, you know, it, it looks like I'm looking at Fumetti, you know, it's like a series of photographs, it feels a little stiff, but then sometimes if it's too cartoonish, it, it, it feels a little too flimsy. So I try to, you know, I, I, I kind of gravitate to stuff that's more in the middle where there is a kind of wonderful energy to it and, um, gesture and expression but he's also really putting in his 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 due diligence with um texture and weight and detail for sure and so yeah. i you know I, I think there is a degree of uh, i mean i just i think i gravitated to his work for that um i think also i uh we i think we've we've wound up working well together because i i like to make my my scripts pretty detailed um i like to put a lot of um thought and effort into them um i know that there is uh there's some who like to write a little more frenetically but i, I like to have you know um, a sense of density and, and, and detail in the sense that you could read this once and then when you go back over you'll notice more things that uh you didn't notice the first time and uh he's been very receptive to that actually he's it's someone that you know depending on your relationships uh with your artists as some that they don't like that as much but he's been he, he works with it really well and it's also something that he 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 loves detail and he loves those um you know that level level of density as well. So I think our sensibilities def, definitely aligned. Excellent. Okay, so this is uh, assuming is the first of the clash of the classic series. What other combinations can fans hope for here in the future? Well, uh, I guess to preface all of that, uh, we're we're taking our time um, because I think just like the nature of how. Um, we're doing the content platform. We didn't want to do, make this something that we just crank out one after the other. Um, I think that it's something, especially that I, I learned from having worked on either like, you know, you've got your regular deadlines like week to week um, versus something that you can really take your time to um, take your time. Really, you, know, you, can, you can you can put more time into it. And uh, I think it's when I really thought also about comics that I've loved I think the prestige format books or something that came out maybe more on a you know they, they come out when they're ready um is, is something that I think lasts a bit longer than something that's also just that we just we had to get it out like once a month or once a week even so um we're we, we're taking our time with the next two but the ones that we do tease at the end of it um well you know I, I'm not gonna spoil but you know if you get to the end if you get to the end of the book you'll you'll see some teases of, of what they are um and that's uh, they're pretty exciting i think they're also going to be um we we wanted to stick to ones that were um the audience would be familiar with there the, the one that we, I, I could say the one that probably won't be happening is uh 
the uh, when Doctor Doolittle visited the island of Doctor Moreau. Um, as much as I thought that would have really been a slam dunk and would have made a lot of sense, we just kind of found out that we, we did a bit of research and found that those don't really, uh, they don't have as much kind of uh, cachet, I think, with uh, audiences today um, or as much awareness. Maybe someday if we keep doing these, we'll, we'll get around to that. Um, but um, I, I, I think, and the hope is also that we're going to have a degree of um, you know, the tone will be a little different. I think this one was, we were striking a very, um, we wanted to lead with action and it's really action packed. And there is, there's certainly humor. I, I think it would be impossible to do a Don Quixote book um, without humor. Um, right. I think that would really be, to my mind, that would have been a, a deep misunderstanding of, <laughs> you know, of the character uh, if we didn't do that. Um, but the next one is going to be a little more, leaning more towards horror um a little more understated and then i think the the last one i think will probably like veer um even further into comedy um but again we're we're, ta we're taking our time with these so we'll, we'll have a tease like they'll be coming out for sure but it won't necessarily be like the month after this um this is uh this comes this is released and then you know we'll, we'll be making sure that we we really want to make these are things that are like less a periodical and more just like it's it's a one shot it's something that you can enjoy and keep you know really savoring as opposed to just saying, hey, wait, where, where's the next one? Let me move on to that one, right? Right. Okay. Okay. Well, th thanks again for sharing a bit of your time with us, Tom. But before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about whatever, any other projects you might have uh, going on, uh, as well as where can fans follow you on social media and the web? Well, um, I guess the answer to the second one would be, uh, I have, as you mentioned, I have a newsletter uh, called the Chuck Chronicles um, that's on Substack. And so, um, and I'm also, I'm on Twitter. I, I, I just, I, I, I honestly started the newsletter because I just couldn't keep up with social media. Like, I think it goes back to, I, I think that became especially even more of a concern um, when I was editing the, the, the comics as well as producing them and also distributing them where it's just, there's only so many hours in the day. Um, and I, I just don't, I couldn't really keep up with doing like daily updates, let alone even like hourly the way that some people can. So what I like about, about Substack and having a newsletter is, you know, I can, You'll probably get about like every about every once uh, about a month or so, um, and I've, I'll go into a lot more detail than I. You know, and I, I prefer that as well to trying to get something to say like 140 characters or whatever the, right. the limit is these days. Um, so that'll be the place. Actually, I can mention now that now that you bring it up, I did recently do a story in um, uh, Moon Lake, uh, which was the, the latest volume of Moon Lake at uh, Heavy Metal. Um, it's called Guide to the Dark Side. I did that with the, I was picked by actually the Dan Fogler, who's a, um, an actor who's renowned, has been increasing a lot lately. He was just in um, the offer at uh, uh, the, that story about the Godfather, or that, that miniseries about oh, the yes, Godfather. Yeah he, yeah, he played um, uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola in that. And then he was also in Fantastic Beasts. He's one of those character actors that when you see, you'll probably realize you've seen him in dozens of things um, already. And yeah, he, he handpicked me to uh, do a short story for his anthology, um, Moon Lake, which is like a really, you know, more like offbeat and kind of demented. I, I'd say it's like a more adult swim take on say like Tales from the Crypt. It's, it's a horror anthology, but there's, it, it, it veers more into kind of uh, crazy comedy. 
So um, I did a story for that called Batshit Bottled Brilliance. <laughs> which the mouthful. It was, yeah. Well, it was funny because I, I think I, I brought that up just sort of like offhandedly, sort of as a joke before, as a placeholder before we found the real title. And then Dan said, like, no, 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 that's great. We're going to go with that. <laughs> and um, it's about um, Moon Lake. All, it's all these stories centered around this haunted lake. And so I had this idea of uh, an, a high school athletic program that gets a shipment of bottled water that is all from uh it's bottled from moon lake and the uh the kids start to go a little crazy they get they, there's degrees of like possession but then the athletic director sees an opportunity to actually turn their program around because they're literally playing like demons <laughs> and so um it gets a little it gets crazier from there it's i, I the, the 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 elevator pitch i've been using for it is like it's like hoosiers from hell um so, yeah, and I, I guess if I if I could circle back to any other point, I, I just want to maybe reiterate that, um, you know, the experience of going um, from store to store um, selling Andy Xenon was just such an amazing experience. And it's something that I really came to have a much deeper appreciation for uh, your local comic book store, um, even than I did before. I don't, I don't think I ever really quite lost it, but I think it deepened after this because um, I think especially, you know, there's been a lot of these, um you know you've seen these documentaries about blockbuster or what have you which i i don't i don't really miss blockbuster as much because i was always more of a fan of like the local mom and pop uh tape stores because the selection was much better and you could really have a conversation with the clerks um and it's something that that's that's gone now you know um it's you you can go to Redbox, right and you're not really talking to anybody or you know you go on netflix and you're just having an algorithm um uh, pick things for you. It just it feels very un- impersonal. Um, I, I don't think, honestly, I, I, I found a really robust industry. Um, like I said, I think in comics, I think there's there there are some industries I feel like are really like actually honestly, I think they all are. Like I think everybody loves the sky is falling narrative. Like I'll talk to some people and saying like, oh, I don't think there's going to be any more like um, big blockbusters anymore. Like you know, they, they're not going to be making any more this like blockbuster series are like i mean these make a billion dollars like i don't think this movie business is hurting right now and i think that that you know that extends like i have friends in theater who people feel that way i just think there's a lot of negativity about the comics industry that i think is a bit unwarranted um in terms of where where its history is going because i definitely felt very encouraged by this that it was very robust and there was these places were crowded and they were they had um really I mean, it, it was it was really wonderful, too, that even I had like a kind of cozy hole in the wall store that was a bit messy and a bit dusty and dark. And they had like 350 subscribers, you know, and I think they were doing just great. So um, but I, I think if I did have an op- you know, an opportunity to bring that up is I just think that I especially I think after being cooped up in one way or another for two years, it was just reminding me how much I love going to a comic store, talking to the clerk, getting recommendations, haggling for deals on back issues, you know, just the whole experience of it, which I think is really, that's an aspect of comics that I think is maybe more, you know, I, I think maybe you have that in, in say like a record store, but that's, you know, but I can't, I don't think you really get as much of that experience with say movies anymore. And so right. if anybody's listening to this, it's just, just, you know, go, go to your local comic store, like, you know, let them, <laughs> Let them know they're appreciated because I, I think that that was something that I've, I, I definitely gained a very, um, or re- regained, let's say, even a, a much deeper appreciation for on this, that whole sales trip. 
Excellent. Uh, is that, of course, I think you also talked about that in your Chuck Chronicles and one of your articles about your, your travels to the comic stores. Uh, so anyway, so we'll be following Clash of the Ch Classics with great interest and hopefully get to talk to you again in the future there, Tom. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got a few things, uh, you know, some other irons in the fire. So I'm, I'm hoping this is good. We'll be back sooner rather than later. Um, so I... I just also learned, though, that, that I think especially after some of the delays we had with, with Andy Zenon's, um, you know, thanks to uh, Andy Zenon's release, thanks to like supply <laughs> supply chain issues that I try not to get ahead of myself too, too much. So at least in this case, we're, we're it's available now. So if you go to right. Kipsell's site, um, you know, it's it's available to, to buy right now and you can own it. And like I said, you can sell it to friends and uh, spread the word and hope everybody enjoys it. All right. Well, we thank you very much. And like I said, we'll be uh, following it real close. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you for listening to GVN's Talking Comics. Please come back again. Talking Comics is a production of Geek Vibes Nation. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.